Good morning. It's working good. If you have your uh, Bibles with you, uh, would you turn to uh, the book of Galatians chapter 2, which is where I'll be preaching from this morning. That's from the Galatians chapter 2. It'll be verses 19 and 20. However, before I begin, I'd like to express my appreciation, uh, especially to the search committee of which I have been in contact with uh, for uh, several months now. Uh, I'd like to express my appreciation for their generosity, um, their hospitality, their kindness to me and my family. And I'd also like to let you know that, uh, 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 that uh, I would like for you to, when you have the opportunity and haven't done so yet, to express your appreciation uh, to the search committee because they have represented you well. And so um, I'm very glad to be able to do that. And also, um, I would also like to thank uh, Pastor Holmes, as uh, he has been a blessing to me too, has helped me through the process. I thank you, brother, as well. Uh, so if you have your uh, Bibles open, I'd like to go ahead and read the passage this morning for us, and that's verses 19 and 20. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I, that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. This is the word of God. So I see that I've forgotten the first thing that you guys normally do, and that is that you stand when there's the reading of the word, so I apologize. (laughs) I'm living and learning, as they say, right? Shall we pray for the illumination of the Holy Spirit? Holy Spirit, uh, we thank you. We thank you that you have shown us Christ. But Holy Spirit, we confess that without you, we neither could have known Christ, nor understand Christ, nor even the word that you have given to us in its depths and its beauty. And so we look to you now to help us as we expound God's word. Help us to see Christ afresh this day. Help us to unstop our, our, our spiritual ears and our spiritual eyes so that we may hear and that we may see Christ, that we may be filled with the gospel this day and a great zeal for you and service to our great God so that we may be able to go out and love our neighbor, as you have called us to do. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It seems these days it's impossible to access your favorite media outlet without having to hear, see, or read a piece about AI, artificial intelligence, regenerative intelligence, And understandably so, I think, because tied to this technology is the hope and fears of humanity's future. All of this commotion over AI feels like it's been a very long time, but it really was only a good six to eight months ago when Microsoft Corporation introduced the ChatGBT software to the world. But this notion of AI and the technology of computer self-awareness, I think it's been around for a long time. If you recall, it was a prominent theme 
in the Terminator movies, was it not? You see, I'm reminded of a movie that goes back to 1999. That was a a very popular movie that was introduced and produced by Warner Brothers. And it was released as the first of a trilogy which gained massive success and widespread popularity. Perhaps you have seen it. It's called The Matrix. The premise of the movie is that most of humanity has been taken captive by man-made artificial intelligence who has gained self-awareness. In the movie, after an armed struggle with their creation, only a small group of humans escaped to fight on, burrowed deep within the earth. The rest of humanity is taken captive and plugged into a sophisticated software program called the Matrix. The problem is that those within the matrix don't know that they are experiencing what they are experiencing is not real. Instead, it's a complex program designed to keep them in the dark, however happy. The hero in the movie, Neo, is approached by this enigmatic character called Morpheus, who could enter into and out of this matrix. Now, Neo is in utter ignorance of what is going on around him. Morpheus begins to explain to him that the matrix is but, uh, could only do uh, so in nebulous terms. And he tells him that it's all around him. When you go to work, now I'm quoting directly, when you go to work, when you go to church, when you pay your taxes, It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. Neo asks, what what truth? And Morpheus answers, that you are a slave. Like everyone else, you were born into bondage. Born into a prison that you cannot smell or taste or touch. He was then offered two pills to choose from, one blue and one red. The blue one would return him to his life of ignorance and bondage. The red one would reveal the true nature of things. He would see himself the way he really was, as well as the world that is around him. The Bible teaches us something similar, doesn't it? That we are all born into the bondage of sin. But humanity doesn't really see itself that way, does it? Now, when I was in seminary, my systematic theology professor, who was also a preacher of many years, Dr. Robert Raymond, taught me that you should let your congregation know what you're going to preach about and then tell them what the points are and then go ahead and preach. So I would like to give you my points this morning and there are three of them. The first one is from ignorance to death. From ignorance to death. The second is from death to life. From death to life. And the third one is from life to love, from life 
to love. So then, let me throw this back at you. If you were provided with an opportunity to see yourself and what reality around you was like, which pill would you take? The Apostle Paul tells us something that God has given to us, and that is similar to that pill, which is the law of God. The moral law opens our eyes to who we really are before a holy and just God. Now, it's interesting to note that in verse 19 of this passage, it does not begin with, I died to the law, but rather it starts with, through the law, I died to the law. It was the Mosaic law of God, which accepted, which acted as a vehicle, as a means by which Paul died to the law. But if the law was a vehicle, we have to ask, what was Paul's original intended destination? You see, Paul wanted to be justified before God. He wanted to enter into a right relationship with God, but it was going to be by living up to the standards of God by his own personal ability. Is this somewhat reflective of your own life? Are you trying to get into a right relationship with God on your own works, on your own good works? Now, it is true that the promise of eternal bliss awaits anyone and everyone who lives out the law perfectly in their life. I say perfectly because that's the minimum requirement that God has set forth for any man to enter into heaven. Now, this is an enormous and an impossible task that no man born with a sinful nature can possibly achieve. You see, we came into this world with a nature that is bent upon sin. Psalm 51.5 tells us, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. This sin nature is what creates an enormous chasm between ourselves and God. But God, in his compassion, has given us his law. By God revealing his law, we know clearly what the standard of behavior is in order to be justified before him, to be declared innocent in his court. Now, I don't know if you're thinking this, but some of you may be thinking, Pastor, uh, that may be compassion, but this is bad news. Because if I'm being honest with myself, I don't measure up. It's like sliding out of the pan and landing right into the fire, isn't it? This is precisely what Paul finally concluded. You see, the law reminded him over and over again on how he just could not measure up to God's standards. Until Paul was brought to a recognition that he lived in ignorance, denial, and continually trusting in his own ability. He couldn't do it. Now remember, there's nothing wrong with the law of God. It is beautiful. It is glorious. What was flawed was Paul. 
because of his sin nature, when he finally realizes that he was unable to gain entrance into heaven through the law, his hope in the law had to die. So let me ask you, are you trying to be a good person? I mean to get into heaven. Do you think that God should call, that if he should call you today to stand in judgment, based solely upon your good works, would you enter into heaven or would you go straight into hell? We can answer that with a simple question. Have you lived perfectly to the law? We don't have to get very complicated here. Let's just consider the Ten Commandments. Have you ever broken any one of them? Just once. Basically, I'm asking you, does the law, has the law revealed to you your inadequacy to fulfill its demands perfectly all the time? Hmm. See, when you swallow this pill, it opens up a door to discover a new life made available through the cross work of Christ. Paul states something fascinating and requires some explanation. He says, in Christ, I died to the law. In what way did Paul die to the law? And what does it mean to have died to the law? We see, in Paul's day, a rabbi was considered married to the Torah, the law. Relationships like marriage were considered in force until a person died. Paul is using this metaphor of dying to the law to communicate the freedom that he has gained. He is dead to the law, and now he is free to find a new spouse, and it is Christ. Paul was given a new life a new spouse. That's wonderful news. Now, to further bring this out, it's commonly held that for as long as a man who has committed a crime and is alive, the law has a claim over him. But when the man has been executed for that crime, the law no longer has a hold over him. It is in this sense that the demands of the law have been satisfied for every believer. But that is only because Jesus vicariously died for us. Now, when Paul says he was crucified with Christ, he's not saying in the same manner as the two thieves on the cross would have been able to say it. It is not as if Paul was physically crucified. It was vicarious. Okay, now there's a difference between personal and vicarious atonement. When man fell away from God, he owed God reparation for breaking his law. It's like stealing something from someone. You owe that person reparation. You have to make atonement, a payment. Part of the definition of justice is that you have to make the violated party whole, right? Uh, it seems that from a human perspective, we can pay off or, or work off most debts. But when it comes to God, the only way that we can work off our sins 
is by suffering eternally the penalty for them. Now, if this troubles you, it should, shouldn't it? But God appointed a vicar, a substitute to take man's place. And this vicar atoned for sin and obtained an eternal redemption for man. Charles Dickens, famous writer, wrote a book called, perhaps you're familiar with it, Tale of Two Cities. It's about, and takes, about, takes place in the French Revolution. At the end of the book, something happened which is very similar to what happened on the cross. There were many prisoners in the Bastille waiting to be executed by the guillotine. Amongst them was one particular man. Now the question was, how could he be released? One courageous friend came up with a plan. He went to the Bastille as a visitor, and when he met his friend, they switched clothes. He said, you can quietly walk out as though you were me, and I'll stay here and take your place. So they did. The man who was due to be killed walked out scot-free and was never discovered. And the other one, sacrificially, died in his place. Christ did the same. You see, he took our rags, our sins, and he gave us the royal robe of the Son of God. First, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says the following. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The guilt of our sin was transferred to Christ upon the cross. That's good news. Christ's crucifixion, his death on the cross, turns away and satisfies God's anger. The biblical word for that, for turning away and satisfying God's anger, is propitiation. Christ died as my representative on the cross. It is as if I was there. Christ was representing me on that day. For everyone here who has placed their faith in Christ, Christ was representing you on that day, taking the punishment that you and I deserved. So I used to live in fear. I used to live in fear of the righteous condemnation of the law. And I remember flying. I loved to fly. And I would look down from the window and I'd see the, the landscape ahead of me. And I thought it was so wonderful. There was always this fear inside of me. What happens if the plane crashes? What will happen to me after that? And I used to be very, fear, very fearful that I would not make it into heaven. But I no longer live in that fear because of Jesus and what he has done for me. Do you live in fear? Know that Christ has taken that away from you. You see, when he was raised from the dead, he was raised justified by God because he had personally fulfilled all of the law's demands. Very similar to what Pastor Rick had just mentioned to us. 
all those who belong to are, or are in Christ are justified along with Christ by faith alone. This means that we are freed from the curse and the guilt of the law. And by this crucifixion, we are now set free to live for God and obey him, motivated by joy and not out of fear. I, in Christ, I died to the law. In Christ, you died to the law. It's interesting to note that one of the law's purposes was to work itself out of a job. That is to point us beyond itself to a rich relationship with God. And this takes us now from death to life. See, Paul doesn't stop at death to the law. From death to life, he tells us. He tells us in verse 19 that he died to the law, and now he tells us what he was alive to. For those who are in Christ by faith, there is a connection with Christ's work on the cross. All believers, in a sense, have died with Christ. That is, our old selves died. We are still physically alive. But our personal aspirations that sought out our own personal glory, our sinful desires to elevate ourselves, died or should be in the process of dying. Paul teaches us that Christ lives in us, that he resides in our thoughts, in our wills. And so the purpose of our lives changes. This addresses one of the most profound philosophical questions of life, and that is of teleology, purpose. This summer has been, well, of of, of many things, amongst many things, and for us in Texas, a very, very hot summer. But, you know, it's been a summer of Barbie, hasn't it? The Barbie movie has taken our country and the world by storm. It is the number one grossing movie in America and internationally. Now, I don't think that it's been so successful at the box office just because of the associated nostalgia. I think it's been successful because it's a well-written story. Barbie is faced with the teleological question. She gains self-awareness. She takes the pill, I guess, of the real world and begins to ask herself questions decoupled from what the world wants her to represent and achieve. What's my purpose in life? You see, Paul gets it. And he answers that question. My purpose in life is to live for him. The one that vicariously died for me, the Lord Jesus. And he does it by faith. So let me ask you, Christian, what is the purpose of your life? 
Is it to live for Jesus? We no longer live for ourselves, but we live for God. So then, we can say along with Paul, it is no longer I who live in the flesh, but it is Christ who lives in me. That is, I live for Christ. To be crucified with Christ implies a radical transformation within the believer's life. For Paul, Christ was the main meaning in life that informed him of everything else. Can we say the same thing? Is Christ the sole, overarching purpose, meaning in your life? You may ask, well, Pastor, what about family? What, what about work? The answer is, yes. Our goal in life is to help our spouses to glorify God. Our goal for our children is to glorify God. Our goal for our work is to, in our careers is to glorify God, to glorify Christ. See, for Paul also, there, there were different areas of life like these things, but they were all tied together to the desire to elevate Christ in all that he did. Every moment of Paul's life was lived out with a conscious dependence on Christ. Think about this for a second. How would your life look if you lived your life that way? Living every moment of your life with a conscious dependence on Christ. Now, now think, if every Christian in this country lived that way, what would our country look like? Let me take it a little further. What if every Christian in this world lived that way? What would our world look like? I think it would look radically different than what it is today. Now, although we've been crucified and resurrected with Christ vicariously, we still have a personal identity and an identity which, which has Christ's spirit residing in it. Paul tells us <clears throat> that the believer is the temple of God. Christ's spirit lives in us. We're not like the Old Testament saints who needed to go to Jerusalem, the temple in Jerusalem, to be with God. But God is in us. We individually and corporately make up the temple of God. And he has set up home, he has set up residence in every genuine believer. As a consequence of of being the king in your temple, my temple, your life, he can move the furniture around in any way that he likes. Frankly, he is the best interior designer there is. Let me ask you, do you, are you resisting, fighting God the Holy Spirit when he moves the furniture the way that he likes in your life? Maybe a little bit? 
Do you find yourself sometimes saying, Holy Spirit, why are you moving my love seat? I like it right where it is. What are you doing with my favorite armchair? Wait a minute. Why are you going towards the front door with it? Hey, I spent a lot of time in that chair. My sin. Why did you just throw it out into the curb, Holy Spirit? How do you respond to when God reorders the furniture of your life? You see, Paul, the Apostle Paul, did not have an issue with this. That is, God reordering his life. Why not, you may ask? That's a fair question. And that brings us to our third point. From life to love. This very same Christ which Paul identifies himself with through faith, says of him, loved me. Do you live your life every day with the knowledge that Jesus loves you? Do you ever forget that? Do you ever doubt that? How do you know? How do you know that Jesus loves you? Paul knew that Jesus loved him. As he states, he delivered himself up for me. Now this last phrase really glues everything together, doesn't it? Paul has already dealt with the technical side of vicarious atonement and our identification with Christ on the cross. But after being brought to life through faith, Paul provides a look into Christ's motivation. Hmm. Now, in other places, Paul states that the delivering up of Jesus was an act of God the Father. For example, in Romans 8.32, it states, He who did, not know, who, who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. But here, Paul tells us that Jesus actively delivered himself up on the cross. It was an act of his will. He accepted having the Father condemn him in our place, in your place. He accepted having the Father turn his back on him, a thing never experienced in the Trinity, in the second person of the Trinity ever. Hmm. You know, in the final analysis, Jesus didn't have to do it. We have no claim upon him. We have no claim upon the Father, and we certainly have no claim upon the Holy Spirit for what God has done for us, right? Scripture tells us that Jesus did it without compulsion. 
speaking of his body, he says in John chapter 10 and verse 18, No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. It was Christ's desire to do this. He freely gave his life for his bride. He was not coerced into it. He was not guilted. He was not shamed into sacrificing himself. You see, where the first Adam led his bride from life to death, the last Adam gave life to his dead bride. So why did he do that? Why would the God of creation humble himself and take on human form to present himself a scapegoat for sins? Paul answers that question, right? It is because he loved me. He did that for you, saint, because he loves you. Before the foundations of the earth were laid, the Father must have shown the Son his bride, the church. And what it would have looked like at the end of the ages, and the Son saw and knew every believer that the Father hand-picked to be his bride. Saint, have you thought about that? Have you thought about that recently? That God the Father hand-picked you to be for his Son, Jesus. You see... This love that Jesus has for you is intensely personal. It's not some theory or some hope that you would have come to him. You see, he died knowing that you would be courted and wooed by his spirit. The love that he demonstrated for Paul on the cross was debilitating. You see, it brought Paul to his knees. There's a famous Scottish Presbyterian minister, Samuel Rutherford. He put it this way. I used to love the world and the things of this world, but then Christ came from heaven and he stole away my heart and ran back up to heaven with it. And I couldn't love the world anymore. I have to love him. See, we can't help but love Christ when he steals our hearts away. Has your heart been stolen by Christ? If the Holy Spirit is wooing you today, even now, to come out of the darkness of spiritual death. Don't you see now that his love is irresistible? 
Won't you accept Jesus' love for you this very day? If you do, even today you will be able to say, even after you exit these doors today, you will be able to say the following. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Praise the Lord. Shall we pray? Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that indeed that you love us and you demonstrated that love for us upon the cross at Calvary. Help us, we pray, Holy Spirit, to take stock of that deep, deep, rich love for us. Remind us as we wake in the morning, as we go throughout our day, even as we prepare for sleep, that great and wonderful love that the Lord Jesus has given to us. We may take stock of it. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would grant us the grace to accept the changes that you are making in our lives this very day. Help us to accept righteousness and holiness and help us to hate our sins so that we may glorify our great God and Father and reflect the Lord Jesus in all things that we say and that we do, knowing that we can't do it on our own and we need your grace. And so we ask that you would do that. And we ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.